Hello and welcome to Navara FM, brought to you by Navara Media and broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. I am James Butler. And this week I had the great pleasure of catching up with Paul Mason. I'm sure Paul is known to many listeners as one of Britain's most prominent left-wing journalists. He's also someone whose work I genuinely value because he always seems intent on both thinking for himself and attempting to respond to the world as it actually is. Those two qualities are evident in abundance in his new book, Clear, Bright Future, A Radical Defence of the Human Being. The book is an expansive attempt to ground opposition to the manifold forces of oppression, both political and technological, in a kind of reworked radical humanism. It is an expansive book and one, I think, fizzing with ideas. It's the kind of book that I think the left needs and should be producing. So I started with trying to delineate the present political moment as Paul sees it and take it from there. So in a sense, I see the book taking off from some of the arguments you've been making for a long time about technological change, the failure of neoliberalism, the way in which that precipitates new political subjects. It was visible in 2011, and 2011's kind of a watershed for that, the sort of long 2011. So the book then takes these crises together. So you've got the post-08 crisis in capitalism, that's one, and ensuing that there's a crisis of consent and authority in neoliberalism. Two, you've got serious fractures opening up in the liberal world order. Three, the rise of sort of reactionary strongmen. So Trump, Duterte, uh, Erdogan, Putin, and so on, they're associated chauvinist movements as well. Um, and then four, I think also in the book, this is another stream in there, is the rise of those kind of cyclopean machines, as Marx would call them, right? So these machines that go beyond their initial capacity are capable of self-building, artificial intelligence, automation, stuff like that. Uh, then on top of that, it's a big book <laughs> that you've got the mediation of human social life through these kind of new technologies um, you know the digital world and then the ensuing rise of behaviour manipulation uh, you know algorithmic management stuff like that and related to that I think there's also a crisis in the ideological sphere right so where the kind of person produced by neoliberalism starts to fall apart and then there's this crisis of truth which I think is in there as well so I think that's some of the things going It's a fair summary of the analysis. There's also <laughs> prognosis as well. But. Right, exactly. So this, this is what I wanted to get to because I think most of our listeners would recognise these crises, right? Would say, okay, we know these are things. Correct, but many people in the general public do not recognise that. Right. They don't even recognise that there can be a crisis of what you might call consent for democratic institutions. Uh, they don't really understand the problem of there being a crisis of belief in truth and verifiability. Uh, you know, for me, it's we could lose the Enlightenment. It's not about losing Blairism or, or you know, Hillary Clinton. It's losing 400 years of Western Judeo-Christian rationality. Um, that, for me, is, you know, and I, if I want to rattle the cages of Navarra's listeners, it is, it is by raising that as the threat, and partly because I think for some people on the left, they don't care about that. Um, but yeah, the, th the, the crises that I, I mean, I try and speak, speak about it in three headings. It's, it's, we've got an economic system that doesn't work. We've got failing consent for, falling consent for democracy, rule of law and universal human rights. And on top of that, and it looks like a separate thing, we've got the beginnings of algorithmic control and surveillance. Uh, but, you know, it isn't a separate thing because the weapon the right has used, Cambridge Analytica, Facebook, uh, has been to, in order to manipulate electoral outcomes, has been the intelligent 
replacement machines provided to them by Silicon Valley. And we're only in 101. We're all, these are very crude I- instances of, of those machines. So for me, the argument of the book, the first part of it, is that in each of these crises, what they they seem to me to be rooted in a deeper crisis of the neoliberal self. Now, I know to your listeners, maybe the word neoliberalism is not challenging, but to a general audience, and I speak to them, they still go, I don't know what it is, and is it just an insult like fascism? And for me, I always love to use the the, the, the definition of Will Davis, the, the Goldsmiths academic. It's, it's the coercive imposition of, of market forms of behaviour over a 30-year period, which came to an end when the coercion couldn't produce success anymore. Um, so look, the, the the self we produced in that time is defenseless against the current crises. Um, and as Foucault said, evident, it, we became eminently governable. A lot of people on the left are looking for answers to that at the level of political action, and quite rightly, so am I. But I've come to the conclusion that there's another part of it, which is you know, to skip towards the end of the book, like many people influenced by autonomism and the 2011 period you, you describe, I believe that there is a new agent of change. It's more diffuse than the proletariat. It needs, as the authors of the uh, coming insurrection told us, to find each other and act. But what the book is an exploration of is what would class consciousness be for such a agent? Mm-mm-mm. Right. So, I mean, one of the, the things I guess we'll come to is, is that question of who or where political agency lies, I think, in 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 this world. But I mean, it, the thing that's I I guess or or that immediately came clear when you insist on thinking all of these matters together, right? Is that I I you know listeners can go back in the archive and we've discussed many of these things in their individual streams and you know what they imply for politics, what they imply. but the suggestion that comes out of it at the end, I think, is that politics in the 21st century is not going to look like politics in the 19th and 20th century. And that is actually quite difficult for someone who is, like I am, uh, you know, quite conversant with the history of the left, um, which can lull you into believing that there will be more or less relatively stable uh, kind of political structures so left and right and there is you know you know the left of the left and the right of the right and you know maybe we can change those things around and look we're we're ultimately looking for overturning some of that stuff but ultimately the 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 structure through which politics is conducted is more or less the same it seems to me that one of the things the crises you talk about so and we're talking here crises of kind of truth uh, and you know the ability to make kind of basic uh uh Inferences which are based on trust and which are based on you know verifiable things external to uh, to the self, whatever uh, these things may no longer exist. And do they have? Does that mean politics is going to look a lot weirder? Well, you know what? Um, I recently watched that movie, uh, The Favorite, which is about a lesbian relation, three-way lesbian relationship in the reign of Queen Anne in Queen Anne's court. Okay, and what? I, I didn't. I hadn't really fully re- remembered this. That th- that is the period in which two-party politics emerged in in Britain. And in other words, you get the Whigs and the Tories in this ridiculous Parliament, although they're with their actual wigs on, which look ridiculous. Um, <clears throat> it's a post-revolutionary period. We've had two revolutions. You know, the the, the English Civil War and the Glorious Revolution. And um, and and you, you you then get the emergence of bourgeois politics. Um, 
industry versus it's, it's basically it's the city versus uh countryside mm. no you said to me you know politics won't look the same as left v left right by right, right i don't think that's a conclusion I, I draw explicitly in in the book but what you would expect if you were somebody like me and i'm sure many of navarro's listeners are who understand understands capitalism itself as a, a thing with a beginning middle and end mm. then towards the end um the structures you know, given that, say, at the beginning, if we if we say 17th century Britain, there were no structures of left and right and parliamentary uh, structures in that sense. Well, there was a parliamentary structure. It just went to war with the monarchy. Um, but but given it took time to emerge, it, it, it will all also, I think, break down. I think the left, as defined by me, is progressive politics. It's pro-human politics. It's human-centric. It is... Um, it's the opposite of all the biological hierarchism that is being uh, discovered by the right. In the book, I take some time and detail to anatomize the new thought, the new thought arch- architecture of fascism, um, which is what it shares with the, the new right authoritarian conservatism. Um, at its root, I, I, I even go so far as to say anti-feminism or misogyny is is probably the glue that sticks the two sides together. We're speaking today on in the week that um, Alabama just completely ab- uh, abolished abortion, um, and yet you see what what is concerning here is that that was done by politicians who would describe themselves as mainstream conservatives. I think mainstream conservatism in the Western world is losing its ideological defences against fascism, which it took a long time to build up if you think about, say, Austria. The Freedom Party is there. The quasi, you know, it, is, it is very much a, a, the son of fascism. And you've got the Austrian liberal, you know, the, the classic liberal Christian ruling party that's been there since World War Two, in coalition with it, but worse, failing to failing to, you know, or rather failing to have an intellectual defence against it and prospering through its alliance with fascism. So my, so I, that, that to me is one of the, the, the anatomies, I wouldn't say for the rest of the 21st century, you're going to live through longer, more of it than I will, but for the next 10 to 15 years, defeating this thing is the thing. Yes, I mean, I think, so one of the things to clarify is, is you know, my point here is not that the left is suddenly unmoored from its history, but some of the predicates of left-wing politics, like a you know, kind of stable economy, or, you know, social democratic politics, for instance, are no longer, are no longer there. And nor is the the, the kind of uh, dogmatic assumption that you have from the kind of old Marxist left, which talks about a particular kind of historical telos, for instance, a kind of teleology. We'll come back to that, yeah. I think. Um, I want to think just a bit then about the intellectual resources you draw from here, which are kind of really interesting constellation of uh, sort of mid-20th century left-wing anti-fascist thinkers so you have a really really interesting chapter on Hannah Arendt you draw for instance from the work of Eric Fromm who I find tremendously interesting I think is underread on the left Fromm talks about uh, this kind of inner tiredness that characterizes the the kind of relationship of uh, of many people in the post-war period and their relationship to, to and also the they of any bureaucratic society, right? And yeah. my goodness, do we live in a bureaucratic society? If you have any in, in, interaction with the DWP or even with you know the checkouts at Tesco's, the automated checkouts at Tesco's, <laughs> you know the, this inner tiredness that Fromm describes in the mid 20th century that led to fascism is something that I think that the modern societies that you know you can now find it in Shenzhen, you'll find it in Mumbai. It's it's everywhere. But carry on, sorry. But yeah, so I mean, I. I 
I guess what I wanted to do is just because I found it so, such a striking thing to draw from. I had forgotten from talks about it, uh, and and you know it seems to link to me. Later, you talk about you know the the way in which the academic left for the past few decades has you know engaged in a, progr- a program of a kind of almost acidic scepticism one that destroys like, all kinds of possible bonds of solidarity or mutual uh, imaginative empathy and stuff like that so there, there seems to me to be a kind of uh, like melancholy scepticism alongside this inner tiredness where do they come from why are these the dominant affects or uh, intellectual predicates of so much of contemporary society and in particular the academic left well okay let, let's 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 go back to where to, to where you started and you you rightly identify that i tried to draw on uh, the writings and thought of a generation of marxists who i think have been uh, misunderstood so everybody know because of you know because of um you know uh, the far right and because of jordan peterson and because of uh, you know uh, because of richard higgins who put on a memo on trump's desk saying you're at war with cultural marxism everybody's heard of cultural marxism i am a marxist uh, you know uh, it, whatever you call me cultural or otherwise um, but that cultural marxism as we should all know if we watch contrapoints and listen to just read one wikipedia article uh, is the, the right term for political correctness and they identify correctly where this came from and that is the Frankfurt School which certainly even before the war and ben- Benjamin during the war and the Frankfurt School the survivors after the war say the working class has failed it's not an agent of history anymore our job is to critique capitalism and for some of them and, you, and I think Marcuse is the most uh, uh, well identified one then emerges the idea well there has to be an agent of change and it's probably it, it's either the third world peasantry or it's you know the, the kind of cuban stalinism or it's the black population of america or it's feminism and this is also you know the, the american elite understand the danger or rather the right-wing uh, elite well we i anatomize where trump comes from within the american elite and we'll go back to that but that section of the elite that is terrified of social progress is absolutely right to 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 see the anti-capitalist nature of all these forms of resistance like Black Lives Matter, like that Me Too, whether they proclaim themselves as anti-capitalist, they cannot, the, the form of capitalism that needs to survive under Trump, Duterte, Bolsonaro, uh, Victor Orban is a capitalism they can't live with. So they're right. But at that great moment of bifurcation in the mid-20th century, when Marxism surveyed you know, the Soviet Union post-war, the, the, the commodification of working-class life, another set of Marxists said, actually, it's not that the proletariat has ceased to be the agent of change, but that, that if we go back, and they were discovering, of course, Mar- the Marx of 1844, the, 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 the humanist Marx, if we go back to that, it is also obvious that the teleology within Marxism can be linked not to the proletariat and its destiny, but to human life and its destiny. So instead of looking for an alternative agent, they expanded the agent to just human beings. So this is what, I mean, from... within the Frankfurt School had been a psychoanalyst, a psychologist and a sociologist. He did this amazing uh, survey of young people, of workers under the Weimar Republic from which he concluded that there was an authoritarian personality which some communists had shared causing them to flip over to the SA after the victory. But after that he writes this book, which I think is one of the touchstones for me, which is, there's several titles to it, but, but it's, it's called Fear of Freedom in, in one translation, where he, he does anatomize, I think better than Arendt, where fascism came from psychologically. 
Now, this is very important to us because I think, so from is one, um, the other one is Rea Dunayevskaya. Mm. She was Trotsky's secretary, broke with Bolshevism, broke with that kind of, you know, Marxism. And, and, and I think is, you know, obviously in her later life became kind of a leader of a very unpopular and slightly cranky Marxist humanist movement who were all very keen on my book. Um, but what she wrote in those crucial moments where she's breaking with Bolshevism, I think was correct. And she rediscovers the Hegelian Marx. The other one, and I don't quote him so much directly in the book, but his writings have been very inspirational to me, even since I was a young kid here in South London. I young, guess who is? You know Alison McIntyre. No, it's C.L.R. James. Ah, okay. It's, 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 <laughs> it's, it's C.L.R. James. C.L.R. James almost moved the furthest from Marxism. He was, you know, at it, when he yes, was an, yeah, yeah, yeah. analyzing America under the Cold War, he was he was overtly anti-communist. Mm -hmm. There's this book, uh, Renegades, Mariners, and Castaways, that he wrote in prison in the States because he was imprisoned as an illegal migrant, uh, and he wrote it on um, on Staten Island, um, not Staten Island. What's it called? Um, the Rikers. island, not Rikers, the island where everybody arrives. Uh, in, in America, he wrote it in in, a, in in immigration detention, and it's all about power. Uh, no, yes, to Alistair McIntyre. You know, there, there's a whole. It's weird, isn't it? There's a whole generation of people who study philosophy who think, uh, uh, you know, who don't know that Alistair McIntyre was probably the second or third greatest in Scottish, British <laughs> Marxist. Um, and he was part of that generation long before new, the new left became the new left. He was part of the emergence of the new left. In he was, you know, his correspondence with Donayevskaya, his mm. correspondence with all these people is is extant, and and I think that his was an attempt to create not simply a humanist Marxism, but what I am doing, and it, and, it, and he broke with it, and he, it failed, and he, he repudiated it, but an Aristotelian Marxism, and a, a Marxism where the missing bit, the, where there's a moral philosophy, is is reinserted. So yeah, that will be a. People, I'm sure people will be saying, "Fucking hell, Paul! You know, what, why are you trying to do that amid, while you know, you know, when we're trying to mobilise against Tommy Robinson, and and you know, when there's huge problems of Marxist political economy to to solve, like wh how do we do the climate mm -hmm, transition? Mm -hmm. And the reason I'm trying to do it is because I think we're going to spend the next 20 years in a culture war with the right, and if we're going to defend human-centric politics, there has to be a non-theological basis to defend that. And for me, humanist Marxism is, although its critics will, of course, uh, say it is almost theological. I want to just make a leap to Hannah Aron, just because I think it's a, a useful way into this, because Aaron has been really, really popular in the United States since the election of Trump. Now, to me, like, there, there are some problems with her thinking, and you identify a really key one, I think. I mean, I would point to novelists like Sinclair Lewis, for instance, really, really interesting as a way of thinking, you know, from an American perspective, thinking about how these things emerge. You find a lot of in insights in Aaron, but say she isn't enough. Why? Well, look, we as Marxists... You know, and I was trained by and educated by the actual post-war Marxist generation. I've met people who stood on soapboxes in Hyde Park in 1936, shouting down the Communist Party over their repression of the Puma militia. So I met people who did that. They knew that Marxist, Marxists, that the Marxist analysis of fascism hadn't been enough. And so when anarchism, you, you know, there's this book by Daniel Guerin about the about mm. you know, about the, the the industrial roots of fascism. We had to discover where fascism came from. That post-war generation, which came before me, but I remember them, and I remember, you know, often obviously as well that 
and they were quite instrumentalist in it. You know, it's this section of the bourgeoisie, it's this problem of breakdown for German German colonialism, and it leads to X Y Z. There's another, as it were, the humanist Marxist or unorthodox Marxist attempt to analyse Nazism above all as a psychological phenomenon. I think was then sort of ignored or or downplayed by that post-war generation who of orthodox Marxists. And if we think about what, what Aaron, who's closest an anti-Marxist, what she does is she picks up very many of the same points that Fromm makes in Fear of Freedom. That it's that the key point for me is that what we're seeing now is what she described as a temporary alliance of the elite and the mob. And she uses one of the quotes I've used is, is that she says what Goebbels gave this temporary alliance was access to history at the price of destruction. That's an amazing phrase and, 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 a, and a, a pregnant one because what the current right want is it's the access to the reversal of history. This abortion ban that's going on all over America, the, the shutdown of, of, of universality, uh, principles of universality, the attack on the university as an institution, um, is the attack on peer review. This guy who's just been sacked by Cambridge, his whole raison d'etre is to edit journals that reject the concept of, of peer review. Um, so all of that comes from the need to reverse history. Neither the elite, the, the, the Jacob Rees-Moggs or the Trumps, you know, or the, the, those people who back Trump, Robert Mercer, neither they nor the plebeian masses who support them can stand progress. So they've got to reverse it. Um, but then there's another thing that Arendt says in a little known essay about uh, are Germans naturally fascist? This was a big problem at the end of the war. Everybody thought Germans had national character. She says, it's not the German national character that brought fascism. It's the disintegration of that character. Now that for me was a was a a flash of light that made me think what we're seeing is the disintegration of the neoliberal character. We are living through the same problem, that we've created hollowed out, tired people, people who used to just expressing their, not simply their, um, not simply their kind of personal desires as as market choices, but you know, if asked, should there be you know, should there be a new library in Peckham? You know, the the the, the councillors and civil society and journalists would ask, will it be good for the economy? Mm. Not like would the books be interesting? You know, the, so we're all used to. We've become very, I argue in the book, very performative in our in our uh, self obeisance to market. You know, the, to market uh, logic. And the terrifying thing for me is not just that this has left us disarmed in front of people who have a non-market logic. You know, the new right, the alt right, the fascists, and and their their echo chamber in the mainstream have a non-market logic. We just want they'll say on the doorstep, you know, I don't care if you're you're offering me a, a, a new school or a new hospital. I just want the migrants out yeah, of my yeah, country. Yeah, yeah. No, the 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 problem that that arises from from that for us is that you can't def we don't want to defend neoliberalism but you, but you there's got to be a different kind of self emerges to defeat what is coming Arendt, of course is totally wrong about many things she she was by everything she's the first person who says that fascism and stalinism look the same this was said by trotskyists in the 1930s james burnham who broke with trotsky also said it but the the, the weirdest thing is that her theory of America has been completely disproved. She believed that there was something intrinsic to America as a, as a, a Calvinist republic that had made it 
fascism impossible. The weirdest thing is that we're seeing Arendtian-scale right-wing bullshit from in America after nine years of uninterrupted growth under Obama, after 240 years of interrupted only by a civil war uh, of Republican constitution. Um, This is not the bulwark. Uh, And indeed, the, the other problem is, yes, for sure, in the 1930s, the populations that succumbed to fascism had been through war, uh, they've been through a militarized education system. They've been through the hierarchy of the factory. We've got none of that. Mm-hmm. We're a networked generation, and still, the, the desire for the fascist heel on the face is um, of the oppressed is there. So we're in even deeper shit than the shit that Aaron, Aaron <laughs> describes. But I do want to inject that debate with her because, like you say, so many of the American liberal left think that it's all answered there. Yeah, in fact, yeah. uh, I mean, I shall reveal that after my Arendt chapter was was uh, was uh, was um, excerpted in the New York Review of Books, very irate Arendt scholar, scholars are getting on board saying, you know, like nitpicking over yes, kind of, of tiny details because you course. can't even attack, you can't even critique Arendt now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's striking, isn't it? Like, I mean, it's odd that she becomes the, the answer for this because, like, you know, I, I used to read Arendt as this kind of interesting thinker who would provoke you to go like no that's wrong and and but why is it wrong and it's wrong in an interesting way you know, i mean there are two things one thing that's very useful from her in her kind of defense of the american republic i think um in in that book on revolution the series of lectures you know where she says the french revolution is bad but the american revolution is good um but one thing she points out is that revolutions are those moments in human history wherein you have both uh uh, liberal and conservative impulses at the same time. So you have this uh, desire to maximise human freedom or whatever, however you define it. But at the same time, you have to think about building institutions which preserve this very fragile achievement. It's something that I think sometimes the left has failed to think about um, and and fa- and has taken those institutions for granted. At the same time, she has in that book and elsewhere this tendency to find in uh, political actors that she finds most fascinating there's always like this moment of voidness yeah. within them right? and for, sometimes it's in political hypocrisy where you can't read the human heart and whatever and sometimes this is I think a very good thing right like a, a limit to human knowledge or an understanding that's Look, I, difficult there yeah, I, think, I think you know I, I don't want to you know I, I don't I'm not I'm not qualified to critique the whole of Arendt's thought um, I think that however the aspects of it that seem to me to be Apposite to know, like when she says the Nazis were only lying the truth when they said that the the world can't, the current situation can can neither guarantee your security nor your well-being. That's probably true now for many people. They feel it, and so if somebody pops up and says, you know, the the, the world's fucked, the system's fucked, let it die, start again, repress the reset button. This is Bannon's fourth turning ideology, and it's there. It the, the chaos merchants, the chaos engines of the right. That's that's their desire. This this critical phrase she uses, they wanted access to history even at the price of destruction. And then she says, sensing destruction was on the agenda. Many people became destructive themselves. I think we have to look at that as a real threat now. And to, to you cannot fight it simply by defending the institutions and norms of now. And, and I think that... Um, it's tragic that the, the, the Arendtian remedies have to, in a way, be applied to America itself. But of course, if we want to, to finish, let's you know, finish up on Arendt. The, the, the thing that I point out in the book is that, as a, as a critic of Marx, she, she 
Sorry, she, she's totally <laughs> idiosyncratic, tries to mess around with all Marxist categories. But the reason she does this is because, in a way, she, like my other big sort of targets in this book, the postmodernist, was totally enthralled to Nietzschean irrationalism. In the end, you know, her Nietzscheanism, her failure to see that Nietzsche leads to Spengler, leads to Rosenberg, you know, the Nazi ideologist of race science, leads to fascism. Her, her inability to see that, I think, um, remains whether there's an arrant of the right and there's an arrant of the left today but it for the arrant of the left it's a through line um the, the left is so enthralled with nietzsche and the collapse of morality and the collapse of verifiability rationality of god the absence of god and therefore of teleology from human life that that it can't properly critique arrant and i, I was surprised actually to find myself doing you know, I mean, obviously, you go back to the to original sources, read essays that have not been commented on for a long time. I was surprised to find how little the left had really engaged with her. Um, we're going to have to engage with her because she is a great thinker and an anti-fascist. Um, she just, she just, and and a great destroyer of you know the the mythologies. I mean, currently she's a hugely um, controversial figure, even now in Israel yes. over the Eichmann trial. Yeah. The, the Haaretz newspaper constantly returning to to her critique of Zionism, even now because the, the Zionist right trying to impose its ethnocentric view of on so 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 yeah, Aaron has to be at least a chapter mm, in anybody's mm. book about the the intellectual rearmament the left needs to fight to fight what's coming. Yeah, I want to talk about your humanism then, like, and you know, in some senses, it's a reaction to this Nietzschean problem, right? And so, uh, I mean, even like Thatcher emerges as Nietzsche with a handbag, right? In this, in this reading, it's like really, really quite striking that the kind of project of, um, you know, and it, it links to me to this kind of, you know, there's a reason it seems to me that Nietzsche is very attractive to intellectuals in particular who are often devoted to finding, you know, holes and flaws. And so there, it is this all engaging scepticism and this kind of very acid uh, attempt to kind of rob humanity of any of its myths much of which is you know quite a good project of course right? um but then you know i think about your humanism in response i'm reminded of a line from t.s Eliot before he went you know very fully reactionary in that process of thinking he you know writes in you know therefore i rejoice having to construct something upon which to rejoice yeah right uh, in a full knowledge that there is, uh, you know, there is there there are intellectual gestures or work that has to be done in order to construct a humanism, right? And I think the thing that's quite that, that's maybe distinctive here is you talk about a humanism that it that doesn't have a transcendent guarantor, right? There's no god to give you your rights as no. a, a natural phenomenon. So you have to locate within, you know, a deliberate understanding or deliberate drawing of the boundaries of the human species as inclusive um to find something there to, to for rights to emanate from um right which i you by know, the way I, mine is not the, the the attempt to ground rights in humanism let's uh -huh. come to that yeah, yeah, yeah. It, let's come to look my 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 attempt here is to do something much more basic if there was if the marx memorial library was burning down the the, the, the and i could only rescue one book it would be the 1844 manuscripts mm -hmm. because in in outlining the concept of species being um which i think is so well evidenced now by by what we know which of course could all be changed and, and proven wrong the next day by new and better science but the science we know suggests that what marx 
intuited from human being uh, from hum- from prehistory is probably right uh, and right enough for me to to base uh, an ism on it a radical humanism and as marx did and that is that we evolved uh, by accident into a, a handful of species that uh, human-like species that b- that began to exhibit traits of cooperation, language, and imagination, mm. and technology. Technology moves very slowly for 300,000 years, but it is technology. And on this basis, says Marx, the one that survives, you know, we didn't know much about the others, but, you know, uh, we do. The, the one that survives, Homo sapiens, um, can be assumed to have a historical trajectory leading to technological freedom. That is, that, that we can free ourselves from necessity through technological innovation, and in the process we do what Marx calls the, the, alterations of human, the alteration of human beings on a mass scale, so that for Marx, human nature is not a static thing. For Marx, human nature is that which is created in that struggle. Likewise, free will and determinism, which, you know, the average A-level student and the average undergraduate, the average PPE student is spending all their time on this dualism. Um, Marx says that's a historical problem. We will achieve free will. Peasant in in, in 14th century France has less free will than a woman in Peckham uh, today. Okay. Um, Now, the surprising thing is, because Marxism was a break, an overt break with philosophy, yes it was, it was an attempt to break with philosophy, I quite sort of argumentatively say, in a way, you, one has to understand that as the last bit of Enlightenment philosophy, um, or as the critics put it, Hegelian claptrap. You know, <laughs> the, the, no, no, I'm quite happy to, to, to locate Marx within the, the Enlightenment tradition, because the Enlightenment is a Judeo-Christian discovery of secularism that's what it is it's discovery of obviously of the scientific method of geography of, of navigation of of you know brecht uses this fantastic uh, description for of shakespeare he says what shakespeare's doing is writing about the new kind of people created by bourgeois society uh, um it's kind of throwaway line all of that um yes is what is what we are developing as it were uh, as as we prosecute the class struggle and the the struggle for technological innovation and change. And it is a form of humanism. It's a radical form of humanism. And I think that for me, that when people say, oh, you you know, Nietzscheans or, you know, kind of skeptics, they say, well, humanism is just like a replacement religion. Well, in a way, Yes, it is, but only in the in the way that we're saying, but it's no longer grounded in a in a in a prehistoric, i.e. somebody pressed the start button on, 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 on the universe, nor is it grounded in the immaterial, that is the sort of, whether it's, whether it's Bergson's Elan Vital or you know, the Catholic God, they're always immaterial. No, it's not based on that. It's based on a biological assertion about human beings that they might be able to, in fact, there's a good optimism that they probably will free themselves, unlike all, all other species. That, if you want to call it, is a teleology. But remember, teleology... Is 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 a kind of cuss word in, in you know created in in, philo- in philosophical discourse that for for Aristotle it was a telos it's the it's the purpose I'm quite happy to say that there's a fifty fifty chance of humans either achieving socialism or barbarism mm-hmm. either destroy the planet or free themselves that's a teleological statement um and it for me that is a perfectly you know, I it's a perfectly you could even, let if you wanted to do, and I think the analytical Marxists even probably did this, you could set it down uh, as as a series of, you know, 1.1 bullet points that flow from each other. And I, I, I want to defend that because 
because why? Not just, we are up against anti-humanist irrationalism from the right, but I will argue in the book, the left's various anti-humanisms have made it very uh, defenseless. And let's just briefly mm, go through Yeah, that. I think that's important because this is... Structuralist the- Marxism. When I was at university, everybody was into Althusser, Louis Althusser, because he had... No, 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 why? What was the attraction of it? It was an attempt to groan, to groan the class struggle in a kind of logical and non-sentimental um, logic. It, it, it barely occurred to people. It didn't occur to me that the guy was sitting there in Paris defending Mao Zedong and, you know, and, and, and Brezhnev. You know, mm. uh, you know, he was just out and out Stalinist. But the cr- critical point is, however brilliant Althusser's theory of ideology is, and I have critiques of it, I think it's an interesting contribution and certainly affected my generation. The, the point is, it comes at the price of his central projection, which is history is a process without a subject. And if you want a, another word for that, it's a machine. Mm. Um, and... So that okay, that that leads to some very good critical thought, a great theory of ideology, some interesting cultural criticism. Um, but it, 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 so in British Marxism, it leads to a, a clash. You know, in the Birmingham School, the Stuart Hall saying, "Hold on a minute, you know, where's this leading?" And and, and Althusser's real. This is in the seventies. His the ultra the Taliban of Althusserianism. You know, we're we're really quite against any uh, any of uh, you know, Stuart Hall had to fight them. All right even though he himself was influenced by Althusser. But, so then, out of that comes postmodernism. And, you know, I'm a, a huge admirer of Foucault. Foucault, to me, is the postmodernist who grappled with all the right questions. And he is attempting, even towards the end of his life, where he's writing virtue ethics mm. rules. The, the Parisian lectures, right? The yeah. truth-telling. In, yeah. In, yeah. The, 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 what are they called now? The, 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 those ones, yeah. the, the biopower. Bio, bio yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. They are the, they're the greatest achievement, I think. But And I critique his, his thought in the book. But he is not the same as, the, as it were, the gestural, the, the ex-cathedra uh, postmodernist who, sim, who makes, you know, interesting but argumentative statements like, you know, like, you know, like the Iraq war did not happen and, and all that stuff. Again, a very interesting essay, but you know what they're trying to do. They are part of the of the, the the slow cancellation of the future in in, in left wing thought, um, you know this phrase that, that Berardi uses, that's they're the symptom of it. Foucault's not. He's trying to grapple with the with with those issues, but he very clearly is an anti humanist. He says hum, humanism humans are a social construct. The self is a social construct. It's all the product of its environment, uh, and he even in his in his in his kind of jokey virtue ethics essay. Um, on the on the non-fascist life advises us you know to try and to try and live fragmented selves and create them okay well the problem then leads and Rosie Braidotti who's this Australian Italian uh, feminist says this in her book The Post-Human what this leads to is first of all postmodernism is not creating any operational knowledge it's creating a series of knowledges that don't interact with each other that's not so useful for if you want to change the world so post-colonial studies, feminist studies, cultural studies, they don't articulate really well with each other. And the other problem is, is if you say, you know, man is a creation, is, is a creation of, of recent history, then the whole idea of, of a humanities department kind of disappears. So what then happens is that the crisis of postmodernism in the early 2000s creates, for me, posthumanism. Or it's no, it, academically, it's called critical posthumanism, right? But it's really strong. And it's, the solution is, we are already post-human. 
machines have, t- have turned us into post-humans. This solves all the problems of intersectionality. You know, uh, why bother? Uh, that's what the Cyborg Manifesto really says. Uh, <laughs> uh, and and if we if we are post-human, the whole problem of cognition goes out the window because because alongside you know alongside the overt post-humanist uh, uh, ideas are the ideas of the so-called object-oriented ontologists, those who believe that a styrofoam cup and a human wet brain have about the same chance of having cognition. Uh, and it, right, it might be right. We have to assume that there's a. All arguments have to start from this point standpoint. They might be right, but if they are. You know, Graham Harmon, who is the OOO uh, guru, says there's no possibility of a radical resistance to the far right because it'll be grounded on tra- claims to truth that can't exist. Now, I, I instinctively want to make truth claims about the world and I want to uh, have a politics centred on human beings and their species being and the self-realisation of, of, a, of a trajectory for human life. And so I do reject it. And the book is a, you know, will be highly unpopular among certain undergraduates and some courses because the implication is they should go out of business you know <laughs> i don't want edinburgh university to teach people uh, to you know for 200 hours a year um uh, that, that objects think right i mean i think i think this is i think there's something quite striking about this so i you know i was an undergraduate probably at the the peak of this stuff starting to break so um you know early 2000s just pre and going into the financial crash right so this is a this is a, a kind of thinking that that to me is one something that emerges when mass politics is nowhere to be seen yeah. right um it, so many of its kind of uh, assumptions are plausible um but it you know i mean in that sense it seems like a core ideology to me right and, and something that 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 no longer has much application um, to the real world. I mean, it, 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 there is something, I guess, here that that you know. That so, so for me, there's always the occasionally useful insight. Here, yeah. Right. Which is that that you know, I actually, you know, for something like um, you mentioned there that that you know, there's uh, Latour who's an interesting case. Yeah. But when he talks about you know uh, discovery of penicillin, you know, Pasteur is an event that happens to lactic yeast. Yes. Well, this is like a very striking formulation because it tells us something about oh, okay, what what is it to think of the world with like an attempt to kind of obscure. Um, you know the 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 meaning making subject actually and the, you know, stuff like that so that's all very interesting um, but ultimately it, one of the things that's so striking about it is when it's up against the wall it always seems to me like the human subject comes in through the back door anyway Latour himself had to overtly reverse out of the intellectual dead end he'd gone into you know I mean let, let's let's remind people he says in his first major book. Um, Science, all science is socially constructed. Then in the second edition, he says it's just constructed. There is no society, um, there is just objectivity. You know, the subjectivity that would have constructed the, the, the wrong science, it doesn't even exist itself. Then he makes a series of claims about that the move towards the to object oriented ontology. That is, ontology is what exists. And, 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 and he, he starts to make these, these points, like you, you say, you know, that, that the discussion. Louis Pasteur is an event in the history of lactic yeast, not the other way around. Um, and then he says, oh, fucking hell. Uh, all the climate deniers are also saying science is wrong and socially constructed. And then in the middle of it all, you get the SoCal hoax, mm-hmm. which is constructed by some very hoary, you know, you know, grainy, grouchy kind of, you know, mainstream right wing conservative, not conservative mm-hmm. uh, scientists. But for the exact, for the good reason that 
critical theory had, had overreached itself and was making stupid claims about science. So, but Latour says in 2004, we've gone too far. We need to reverse out. The point, the problem wasn't empiricism. Empiricism was just not enough. Now, that's a very interesting thing for somebody like that to say because he's sitting in um, private seminars with you know, with uh, Tony Negri, with uh, some of the key thinkers of autonomism uh, over the over time. And it must have occurred to them, if the point is not to blow empiricism away, but to do it in a more deeper way, well, what about the dialectic? No, I, I, I'm not a, uh, I'm not a religious dialectician. Uh, I like Alexander Bogdanov, who I wrote about in my last book, um, the, the Russian Bolshevik. I think that the the, the evolution that Bob Bogdanov was part of from dialectics, which is which is Hegelian thinking, to systems theory, is an interesting evolution and something that's totally un, underexplored in Marxism. That Marxism that, 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 that there will be a replacement and is a, there is already a replacement for pure dialectical thinking. It can do certain things, but like like you know like harmony textbooks can do for, for, for people who write music but other things it can't do um, and and I think that the, the you know it, it's horrible to be having to consider these kind of nice to have things like a Marxism that is consistent about scientific uncertainty and complexity but that is what we need yeah, yeah. And, and so Latour I think makes a good reversion under the pressure of climate change and I think many other climate change and the movements around it will will do something else. This is an interesting thing. Especially since especially since Extinction Rebellion began to really penetrate through into liberal bourgeois consciousness, I think it's also alerted people to the fact that teleological thinking is possible. Mm. Because what we're talking about, we're talking about saving ourselves from extinction. So uncancelling the uncancelling <laughs> the future is what title of one yeah, of my yeah. one of my chapters. So teleological debate has to come back to the left. And I think that, therefore, a lot of people would like to do it without annoying some very nice people who are postmodernists and post-structuralists. But the best thing to do is to, to, to overcome them in argument. And like all moments in intellectual history, what will then probably happen is that they will, as you suggest, make some really interesting contributions to the synthesis that mm -hmm. emerges. I mean, so the, 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 the uh, necessary precondition for that is the capacity to engage in public debate, the capacity to engage uh, in forms of reasoned argument that are uh, depersonalized, yeah. right? That aren't actually the the the, uh, the argument of a position is not a matter of culpability, right? Yeah. It's not a matter of moral wrong, and this is something I think that that you know I, I'm a big fan of sort of Nancy Fraser's arguments about this, right? That that yeah, sure, the public sphere has disappeared, and in some sense that's not a bad thing, right? Because the public sphere we had was bourgeois; it was limited by class access, it was limited by gender access, limited by all that, but something fundamental to it the possibility of a public sphere the possibility uh, of civic trust which underlies that and this again i think is a fear that runs through some of your chapters right that that there is a breakdown in the possibility of that kind of argument um so 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 one i think it, it, it's just to say that or just to leave that there i think yeah. that that kind of civic trust is necessary and it's something the left sometimes forgets as well so i'm i'm I say very unfashionable things sometimes, like free speech is good, for instance. Um, I think just the flip side of that, though, is sometimes, you know, I, okay, so let me put it this way. A friend recently called me a reactionary. And this is this is a friend who's saying this because like, we're having an argument. He was, you know, we were talking about um, why I think tragedy is important, 
right? Why I think uh, the art form of tragedy is important. And I think we can too infrequently acknowledge humanity's tendency towards destruction, right? That human beings are possessed as much of a violent nature as a peaceable one. Um, and so that, I was explaining why I think they're important today. And I think sometimes in your account, violence can register as something that arises as a consequence of kind of external malign actors, right? So sometimes in your account of religion, for instance, like, we, you know, you, you say Christians think of people as evil. But one of the things that's useful in the whole history of people thinking about Christian doctrine is that they say that we have two natures within us, right, which pull in these different ways. Um, so how, how do we, how do we, in, in you know, a kind of, a new humanism, a radical humanism. How do we account for, you know, th those those tearing and ruptural forces, uh, you know, within human beings, and a recognition of maybe like how, you know, what it is that allows us, um, or, or what the legacy of a culture is that 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 has developed ways to tame that side of the self. Well, look, I think that. I always try and analyse everything, including like philosophical systems as ideologies. It's really been really interesting to me. You know, I'm not setting myself up here as a moral philosopher. I want to set ourselves up as intelligent clients for moral philosophy. And therefore, I've tried to get to grips with it. And what's been really interesting is when you read, say, the Stanford Dictionary of, of Philosophy. It's one of the great sources. Mm. You know, uh, Extraordinary achievement of the internet. By yeah, the way, like absolutely. It's, it's as good as, as good as big as Wikipedia. Now, is the way in which how un, unarticulated the, the systems are. There's this, you know, there's utilitarianism, there's Nietzscheanism, there's deontology, uh, and there's, you know, there's kind of teleological virtue ethics. But no one ever says, and they're all ideologies. You know, mm. they are actually just ideologies. No, I think that... Um, Virtue ethics has always been uh, an ideological. Every every set of virtues. I kind of made, went through making a list of virtues. That I mean, yeah, you've got you know Aquinas, you've got you've got um, you've got for St Francis of Sales, who, who Foucault takes a piss out of. You've got Foucault himself. You've got um, obviously Aristotle and the, and the Socrates the, 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 and the Stoics as well. But it's quite obvious. All the virtues that they list are nearly always just ideological constructs of a particular class struggle. Uh, and uh, you know the the pre this class struggle in antiquity was between city states and between men and women uh, between slaves and etc. And therefore, all their virtues are all active, like you know, stick somebody in the gut with your spear. That's a good thing. Whereas, you know, Foucault's virtues it, that he writes in the, in the preface to the to the Anti Oedipus by Deleuze and Guattari are are really quietistic virtues for a pe period when you can't change history. So what I'm arguing in the book is that. I don't want to call them virtues, I call them reflexes, that we, the left, we can't just rely on everything being like up there, up there in the world of politics. What should Corbyn do? What should Sanders do? If you look at AOC, she, what she's doing, what, and she's not the only one, she is living to a set of virtues. If you look at what her response is within seconds when somebody says something, some right-wing shithead says something in America, and she says, you've obviously never worked as a waitress for like $5 an hour. This comes from, this isn't like, uh, there's not like, I don't think there's a committee of like white guys sitting there going, <laughs> okay, I will see you, we're now going to hit them with some, you know, virtue ethics. You know, we, we, she's, it's coming from herself. And I think that the battle we are going to fight in the 21st century is between two sets of ethics, the Nietzschean ethics. This is what attracts me to Alistair McIntyre, even in his post-Marxist incarnation. He says, utilitarianism and and, and rule sets, you know, like social justice, are really not groundable in 
in the human experience. And he says, and I'm coming to your point about evil, he says Nietzscheanism and Aristotelian virtue ethics are. They, they are what's really going, that's the, what's at war. And if I look now, one of the things I want to do in this book is to allow people to reframe reality. If you look at the battle between Silicon Valley and the American left, it's a battle over virtue versus fuck you. And, it, and also the battle between Trump grabbing people by the pussy and, and the avatars of the left, AOC, Sanders, you know, Warren, even Warren, you know, I'm a huge fan of the way Warren has conducted herself in this, this battle. The, it is a, it's a battle between virtue and fuck you, which is, McIntyre says it in, in After Virtue, this, this is his major book, it, you know, it, that, those are the only two rule sets that are going to work in a, in a kind of post-industrial society that we live in, and they're the only logical ones. So, going back to your question, right, my, my, my Marxist view of materialist view of where does evil come from is that human beings are a spe still nevertheless a a species genetically you know but biologically created out of the out of the primate mammal kingdom you know if my dog you know it, if my dog you know you see my dog Lottie so if she sees a fight she always piles in on the side of the winner she's a <laughs> she's a classic school schoolroom bully yeah uh, or she, there are times when she loses all um, capacity to be re reasoned with and literally is still either so terrified or so full of lust for blood you cannot even her eyes glaze over you cannot even you know snap her out of it those are animal inf in instincts and of course we have them no the religion w religions were in a way in early attempts at humanistic thinking that say like there's this inner bad bit and we've got to create an inner rational bit that is more stronger than it that's the message not just of catholicism it's the message of, Socr of socratic uh, philosophy it's 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 really the mes message of the oldest religions zoroastrianism and, and early confucianism okay um david graeber in his book on debt i think came up with an amazing like too short marxist analysis of how important the axial age was the age between 800 600 bce to 200 a.d in the creation of humanistic religions he links it to the emergence of city-states and money it's really uh, like in a in in five pages there's a whole theory and i try and you know i've extrapolated a few points from that there but okay what we what that is what all forms of class society are are to try and tame the animal bit and systematize the the, the species being bit and they do so through hierarchical societies rule sets moralities they're all ideologically constructed even mine is ideologically constructed but at least with a theory of ideology you can see through the matrix you can see that the stuff that catholic priests are trying to put into your brain at school as they did with Which mine did. <laughs> yeah yeah we're both victims of that uh, is that is that it, i can see where it came from and what where the stupid bits of it also came from 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 forms of oppression and class society so but look in the end i want to reiterate though the book is an argument for a left virtue ethics as an approach to now i think it's going to be strengthened as the impact of the climate change movement begins to roll out because what has happened we've gone from demanding governments uh, do stuff to demanding that each other do stuff stop using plastic stop eating so much meat this is like this is no longer beard and sandal stuff it's going mainstream and once that, that if that can be templated we can also then say and the early feminist movement was very good at this to men don't behave in this way i think what's been the most depressing thing for me as a man who has engaged with feminism throughout my adult life is the way in which those messages stopped coming 
from women's movements. And they almost always say, you're all assholes, just do what the fuck you want, we're not interested. That that, that was a kind of almost caricatured position. If it, Go on. If, I mean, th- there is, I think, the, the, this tendency, and one of the things I like uh, about th- this proposal for kind of left virtue ethics is that it allows us this way out. So, you know, one of the phrases that that you know, I jotted down when I was writing reading the book was you know, under neoliberalism all ideology tends to a form of accounting yeah. right uh, you know even attempts to understand you know social structure and yeah. oppression and stuff like that it, it turns to this kind of individual system of accounting and that is poison it can be absolutely poisonous it doesn't you know one it's a static system yeah. right and two you know it doesn't allow you know the, the kind of push pull or the, the you know incomplete access to flourishing that virtue ethics will think about of course, you know, the, the selves we created over 30 years just became very good at choosing between Nike and Adidas and very bad at understanding the difference between truth and lies. That's the problem. And uh, the, 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 the reduction of everything to, to, uh, to market mechanisms worked for a while because if you play the game you know and, and the capitalism is successful the more you build you the more you think like a neoliberal the happier you are as long as it's successful but once it blew up in 2008 and the message became it's going to be like this forever guys only worse um people began to look for other other intellectual systems and um uh, what i think's happening with the far right is that it's the it's the grafting on of biological supremacy the alpha male is better than the beta male the beta male should be better than the woman the woman's in the wrong place in the hierarchy you know with all these uh, outrageous things they say about liberated women uh, that's uh, the, that grafted onto market uh, understandings because to a right to a white supremacist why is white supremacism strong in an era when you know when the last super bowl before uh, trump came to power was fronted by beyonce why uh, with a lot of people dressed as black panthers why because because market ideologies tells you that if you are if you are systemically unsuccessful then you have done something wrong this is the calvinistic idea behind American capitalism. So when they look at like the, the the prison population full of black males, then it becomes logical for them to think they have made bad bad choices in the market. Uh, and then when you get Gary Becker, the guru of neoliberalism, saying it can all be sorted if we gave these black males uh, market incentives not to be criminals, then the entire you know, which to a Marxist it just looks like fuck. There's black. There's oppression. There's racial oppression. There's two centuries worth and beyond of overhang that's not going to be sorted out either psychologically or physically or economically without a revolution. To them, it looks like, oh, the black people are making bad market choices and that's why they end up in jail. That's the official ideology of America. So no wonder then on top of it, some Minuteman, some guy with an AR-18, AR-15 rifle says, uh, you, you know, that know that we need we need we need a new confederacy to put them in their place. This these ideas are not foreign to neoliberal uh, ideology. They spring from it. I think sort of rounding up. Yeah, um, the last section of the book has this this series of uh, reflexes or kind of modes of engagement in in politics, and I think there's some excellent stuff in there, including on Louise Michelle, who's a hero of mine, and I know she is of yours as well. One of the things I think that was perhaps most striking, maybe is good to end on, is actually a suggestion to behave as urgently uh, as the situation actually demands, right? So we have 
very different situation to, to previously. We have this kind of continual drip feed of news and awareness, sometimes which can be incredibly numbing, as if you're living in a permanent now. What does it mean to act urgently? Well, I think just try saying two phrases, the non-fascist life and the anti-fascist life. One gets you, you know... Uh, one helps you sort of find your way to a yoga retreat. The other put, can get you in prison or run over by a car driven by a fascist. Um, so, the, But we're going to have to live the anti-fascist life. And the people I talk about in the book, uh, the, Louise Michelle herself, and I was really, really blown away to go to the place where she'd been imprisoned, which isn't even, you know, like it's just a shitty promontory with no running water on a, on a slummy island where everybody's oppressed, even now, at the end of the world, where even people who are free will have, you know, severe depression problems. Uh, you know, that people who live in the South Pacific tend to live, suffer from depression. And I thought, fuck, you know, to, 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 to overcome that and say, I'm going to get back, I'm going to get back, and when I get back, I'm going to get into, 10 years later, on this, from this barren island, the first thing I'm doing is a riot, and I'll go in a, and, and it'll put me in jail for another three years. That, that's the anti-fascist life. And, and I, I did a kind of bit of rummaging around in, in the archives of the Poom militia in Spain because I've always been interested in who was Orwell's Italian soldier. Orwell meets the Italian soldier, he sees him as an avatar of the anti-fascist proletariat of the 30s and there's only 21 Italian members of the Poom and half of them had left by the time Orwell had got there and only one of them was a big bricklayer with red hair and so his name's Cristofano Salvini and I, in the book I do this thing about going well what was his life like, what made him into an anti-fascist as far as we know in his, in his hometown, Casola Delsa in Tuscany, there's no a town there's, sorry, there's no a little street named after Cristofano Salvini but at the time he's an anonymous bricklayer uh, and Orwell sees him as a kind of dumb dumbass peasant who lays down his life for his friend but could kill for the revolution in fact he'd been writing you know, strategic articles in Trotskyist newspapers this bricklayer that the, the human self-transformation I saw in the, at the height of the proletariat at the height of the Enoch Powell era the Heath era the era of the winter of discontent that brought Thatcherism to us was full of people like that you know, they, they're full, and of course, people who had actually fought fascism, uh, and we, your generation, me, my generation, we've got to be able to have the, the the to conceive of ourselves rising to this level of agency and footprint in the world to be able to change things. Some of the most impressive people I know on the left already do. The people who've done the climate camps, the people I saw tear down the, the, the chain link fence around the Glen Eagle summit without a thought, you know, and the poor old cops spilling out of their Chinook helicopter, you know, uh, like, like, uh, like a cyberpunk event attacking these clowns. The, these people have already achieved, you know, I won't name them, the yeah. people I'm talking about. Um, they've achieved that. And, and they are looking at people like Extinction Rebellion and they're saying to them, you don't know what is coming to you. The cops will be in there. They'll be breaking you up. There'll be all kinds of outbreaks of nasty, uh, gritty stuff imposed by the, either the state or other secret states on you. Because this elite isn't, the fossil elite isn't going to go down uh, without a massive fight. And so we've all got to, you know, my generation of leftists, especially those who are still the orthodox Marxists, they spent their entire lives trying to move a boulder with a big lever. They never thought about becoming a little stone and just starting to roll. So they didn't make much change. And, and I think your generation is going to make that change. And whether it wants to or not, it's going to have to defeat fascism. That's all for this week. Clear Bright Future is available wherever you buy your books and in audiobook form too. This has been Navara FM. I will be back at the same time in the same place next week. 
Bye-bye. This show is brought to you by Navara Media. To find articles, videos, and more audio content like this, head to navaramedia.com. If you particularly enjoyed this podcast and would encourage others to listen to it, why not head to iTunes? And as well as subscribing, leave us a review. Navara Media can only exist thanks to subscribers and supporters. If you have the means, please consider subscribing at support.navaramedia.com. As well as helping us continue to produce regular content, subscribers will also receive priority access to events as well as promotions throughout the year. For regular updates, follow us on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube. Navara Media. Media for a different politics.